So far as we have been studying in the book of 2 Timothy, we have seen the Apostle Paul here sharing in this very intimate letter uh, with his friend, his ministry partner, his fellow servant in the gospel, Timothy. This young man that Paul had poured his life into, had trained, had, had brought up and discipled and equipped and, and then had sent out to minister. And uh, no doubt Paul's heart was filled with, with joy as he saw Timothy faithful, as he saw Timothy go out and take the ministry and the word of God and go out and teach and preach and begin to, to effectively uh, serve the Lord. And uh, you know, think about that, what a joy uh, what a joy to see the next generation continuing on in the truth, right? And that's what Paul was seeing in Timothy. And so he's writing this letter, not as a rebuke to Timothy. These letters are not, um, they're not pointing out flaws in Timothy's ministry. Paul is encouraging Timothy, giving him instruction and encouragement and strength for the ministry because Paul knows that it's difficult at times. And so Paul is writing to encourage this young man. And as he's writing, uh, he is encouraging him to stand firmly in the faith, not to be ashamed of the gospel. Of course, Paul writes this letter as he himself is in prison. And Paul has the, the expectation that he is not going to get out of prison, that he is going to die at the hands of the Roman authorities. He knows this. He is confident of this. He's prepared for this. And at the same time, he's trying to encourage Timothy to realize that in the face of hardship and persecution, Timothy, you've got to stand strong and you've got to be firm. Now, in chapter 2, as we already noted, um, Paul not only talked about uh, this, this need to stand, but he really also talked about, as we looked at two, two weeks ago, the the dangers here and the opponents, the opposition that we face, that Satan does not sit idly by while we do the work of the ministry. He doesn't ignore what's going on, but he is actively trying to subvert and, and oppose the work of God. And yet, in chapter 2, Paul makes it very clear that, it, that the, the job of the servant of God, and I don't think this is only referring to pastors or church leaders, I think this is referring to all believers but we should see ourselves as servants of God who are equipped with the tools to rescue those who have been ensnared by the devil. And Paul talks about that and talks about the fact that the servant of the Lord in verse 24 of chapter 2 must be not quarrel, but be gentle, able to teach, patient, correcting in humility those who are in opposition in the hopes that God is going to grant them repentance and deliver them from the snare. And so the, the, the ministry that we do, the ministry that we as Christians and as a church need to be about is about identifying those who have been caught in the devil's snare and then delivering them, not by our strength, but by, but by the strength of God in Christ and bringing this word of, of good news and deliverance to them that they can be set free. And so there's, a, there's, there's really an emphasis here in chapter 2 on the success of the gospel and the success of the ministry of, of the Christian church to deliver those who have been ensnared by Satan. And uh, there are those who have the idea, who have the mindset and, and believe that, that as the church goes about its ministry <clears throat> and as the church, if we are faithful 
to do the work that God has called us to do, that we will be able to kind of revolutionize the world. And that if we were more faithful and more committed and more active in ministry, that we could see this world completely transformed and we could bring about uh, all of the, that we could bring about the success of the gospel. We could see the glory of God and the name of God be spread abroad and everyone in all the corners of the globe uh, would be joining and worshiping the Lord. And that somehow through our own faithfulness and our efforts and obedience to Christ, we could bring about this success of the gospel in the world. Well, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, I would call this chapter a dose of reality. And sometimes we need that, don't we? Well, listen, as, as Christians, we don't live in... Uh, we, don't, we don't live and go through life wearing rose-colored glasses, if you're familiar with that expression. Uh, we, we need to see the world as it is. We need to understand the way things really are. And the Bible never sugarcoats things for us. The, the, the Bible never encourages us to get a, 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 a you know, kind of um, Pollyannish, uh, optimistic, everything is all going to turn out good in the end, and we don't have to... The Bible gives a very real understanding of things. And chapter 3 here is, yes, it's true that the, that the gospel has the power to deliver people from the clutches of Satan. Absolutely. Praise the Lord for that. If not, you and I would be in really bad shape today. Thankfully, God has delivered us from the clutches and the snares of the devil, right? But we should be under no illusions that somehow that means that the gospel is going to succeed across the world in such a way that all of the world is going to be delivered from Satan by this effort that Paul is talking about with Timothy here. Because notice what he says in chapter 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will manifest to all as theirs also was. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help and blessing as we study his word together this morning. Father, thank you again, as we've already done this morning, for your word. Lord, we need to know the truth, even the uncomfortable truth, even the difficult truth, even the things that we don't really want to face. Lord, we need to know the truth. And sometimes we have to be made to come face to face with reality. Because it's only by exposing the truth that your grace can begin to work in our hearts and lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to receive your word. Receive it as it is, the word of truth. Lord, I pray that you would 
would use your word now to transform our hearts. Help me as I speak. Give me wisdom, insight. But most of all, Lord, use me to be your servant, your instrument in proclaiming the truth of your word to your people today. And I pray that you would do your work in our hearts now as a result of it. We'll give you the praise and the thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that I would like for us to understand as we consider this chapter, um, this healthy dose of reality, is that Paul is talking here about the state of the church, the state of the church, and really what we might call the state of the professing church. You know, Paul gives us a list here, and as we read through these verses, you see this list, and you see that this list is, is quite lengthy. And it's not a positive list. It's not an encouraging one. Um, what's really interesting about this to me is there's, a, there's another parallel passage in which Paul offers a very similar list. So why don't you keep your finger here and turn back with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is a passage of Scripture where Paul is... Uh, writing to a different church, right? The church in the city of Rome. Timothy was in Ephesus, so different city, different location. Um, the, the, the church in Ephesus is a church that Paul had ministered in. Um, I'm not sure if he started the church there, but he certainly was there in the early days, and he ministered there, and he spent time there, and he trained many of those people. The church in Rome was a church that, at that time, Paul had not visited. He'd never been there yet. And so these were a lot of people he didn't know. And Paul was laying the foundation in Romans chapter 1 for the, the, the message of the gospel. And so he was writing about the current state of the world. You might call, you might even say the, the state of the, the heathen world, the pagan world. And here's how Paul describes the unbelieving world uh, in his day. There in Romans 1 and verse 28 says they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which were not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And there Paul is writing about the, the pagan world. And he says, this is what the world is like. Then we come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and Paul gives a very, very similar list. In fact, it's so similar that some commentators believe that Paul was copying from the, the earlier list in Romans. Well, I don't really think so. I think this is occasional based on the letter, based on the situation in Ephesus. But I, I think what's important for us to understand here is that Paul is not, in 2 Timothy 3, he's not talking about the world. He's not talking about the, the unbelieving heathen world. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is talking about the church. You notice what he says about them at the end of that list in verse 5. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. 
These are people who have an exterior, an external religion, an external form of godliness. These are people who profess to be Christians. These are people who come to church. These are people who are members of the church. These are people who, who, who say their prayers. These are people who put money in the offering. These are people who, who teach in Sunday school or, or who work in the nursery or who clean the church building or who serve in some other capacity. These are people who, who are externally appear to be Christians. They present themselves that way. And yet the reality is the list that Paul gives us is so similar to the list of the heathen pagan world. And Paul says, know this, Timothy, in the last days, perilous times will come. Now, it's interesting because notice how he's speaking here in the future, right? In the last days. So what is he talking about? A lot of people would look at this verse and say, well, in the last days, that must be talking about right before Jesus comes back. That's talking about the last days, right before Jesus comes back. You know, remember, and, and they'll, they'll go to, well, remember what Jesus said in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, and, and things are really bad in the days of Noah, so things get really bad before Christ comes back, and that's what it's talking about. Well, not only do I think that's a misinterpretation of what Jesus is saying um, in the book of Matthew when he talks about the days of Noah, um, all, Jesus, all Jesus meant by that when he says the days of Noah, he doesn't mean it's going to be as wicked as it was in the days of Noah. What he means, and he says it in the context, people will be totally oblivious they will be going about life as usual, marrying, giving in marriage. All the regular stuff is going to be going on like they normally do. Life as usual, and then judgment's going to come. Just like it did in the days of Noah. People were going about their life every day as if nothing was going on, nothing was going to happen. And then one day the rain started to fall, and everything came apart. And that's what he says. But, but beside the point there, um, what's ironic here, verse 6, notice... What Paul says, as he's already listed all of these kind of people, he says, of this sort are those who creep into households. Now he's speaking in the present tense. Of this sort are those who creep into households. He's talking about people there in Ephesus. He's saying, Timothy, there are people in your church who are like this, Timothy, who are the same kind of people. And they're doing these same kind of things in your church. So when Paul says, in the last days, we shouldn't think Paul is looking way ahead to the future, and this is some last generation before the coming of Christ. Reality is, Paul, John, Peter, they all refer to us being in the last days. And they were in the first century. They refer to that as being their time was the last days which means we, too, are still living in the last days. It means this entire age that we're in is the last days. And because I believe that the Scripture teaches the imminence of the return of Christ, that Christ could come back at any time, that there's nothing yet to be fulfilled before the beginning there of the return of Christ, it means we won't be able to predict it means we live, means each generation of Christians is to live as if this is the last generation. Because we're not guaranteed there will be another one. The reality is, this, what Paul is describing here, is not something that is yet to come that might happen on in the future. Paul is saying it's already here. 
because the last days are here and this whole age, this is what we should expect to see. Paul says, this is what it will be like. Timothy, this is what it is like. So what is the state of the church, the state of the professing church? Well, according to verses 1 through 5, it's simple. Worldliness has become acceptable. And this isn't a new thing. Again, my, my, my point here is to emphasize, this is not a new thing in the 21st century. That all of a sudden, worldliness is acceptable in the church. Paul is saying, Timothy, this is happening right now in the first century. Which means that we're still experiencing the same thing. What is it that men will be like? He, he gives us this list. They will be lovers of themselves. Self-loving. There's a selfishness, a self-centeredness in their hearts. In addition to self-loving, they'll be money-loving. Those two go hand in hand, though, because if you love yourself, you need money. Because <laughs> you need money to be able to provide for yourself all the things that you want. And so, so self-loving and money-loving go hand in hand, don't they? They are boasters. Well, what else do we expect of someone who is self-loving? And they're boasting about themselves, always trying to, to, to make themselves look good and make sure everyone knows about all their accomplishments and all the things they can do and all the things they have. They're proud. That means that they, as they think about themselves, they, they automatically conclude that they are, at, they are better than others. Proud, arrogant. They're blasphemers. That is, they speak evil of the Lord. But again, shouldn't surprise us. If they are self-loving, then why would they give God credit and glory when they can boast of themselves? And what is that other than blasphemy when we boast and brag of the things that for, of ourselves, of things that rightly belong to God? And so it's natural that a person who is this way would be blasphemous. The next one is the really tough one, disobedient to parents. You say, well, kids, are, kids have always been disobedient to parents. Yeah, true. Paul is kind of indicating to Timothy, this is widespread characteristic of the church. Men would be, be disobedient to their parents. One uh, commentator, I don't remember who it was this week that I read, made the statement that it doesn't, you don't have to wait to adulthood before rebellion <laughs> Uh, sets in, right? And before self-centeredness and uh, that kind of arrogance, all that stuff happens in, in childhood and, and, and oftentimes, again, goes unaddressed. Disobedient to parents. Along with that, they're unthankful. But again, this all makes sense. See, if I'm a self-made man, then who do I give thanks to? And why? See, so if, I, if it's all about me and if it's boasting and bragging in myself, then I'm not going to give thanks because why should I? No one else deserves credit. I deserve credit. So that's unthankfulness goes hand in hand here. Unholy. This word unholy is really interesting because it means uh, lacking in a sense of piety. Or uh, to put it another way, it's, it's when someone has no appreciation for things that are sacred. You ever met someone like that? To them, nothing is sacred. Nothing is off limits for conversation. Nothing is sacred. 
Now, I, I actually think we see a really big, I mean, I think we've seen this in our society. We continue to see this push all the time. Um, this idea that, uh, and even, again, I think we, see, we see this in the church, don't we? This idea that, well, um, you know, I, I can worship God wherever I am and, and, and in all circumstances and all the time, and therefore, why do I really need to set aside a day to worship the Lord? Why do we really need to set aside a location and a place to come and gather and worship the Lord? I mean, we can worship the Lord just as easily out in the boat fishing as we can here at church. So what's special about this? Well, there's a grain of truth to that. We can worship the Lord when we're out in the boat fishing or wherever, okay? But when we set something aside as sacred to the Lord, then we should honor it that way. Not because the thing in it itself is different, but because we've, we've dedicated it to the Lord. That's, the, that's the, really the whole purpose behind the idea of the Lord's Day. That we would commemorate a day where we would set aside to the Lord to worship Him and to, to enjoy the rest that He's given us. And I think, the, I think that the, 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 the move to see everything as the same and nothing is sacred is not a good thing. Paul says here, this is a characteristic of the church, the worldly church, in these last days. Unholy, no appreciation for holy things. Unloving. Um, Again, this, this idea of love here, this idea of unloving is that they do not have, um, they do not have natural affection. Um, the, uh, in fact, I think that's how the King James translates this word, without natural affection. It's also that way in, in Romans 1. Uh, it's the same word that's used in both of these lists. And the word, this word for love is, is the kind of word that describes a familial love. It's the love within a family. And he's saying that, that this, there's a lack of family love. Well, without that love within a family, the family itself doesn't hold together very well, does it? And he says this is characteristic of the church. Unforgiving. Um, that word unforgiving uh, is, is a word that actually means a truce breaker or uh, someone who won't, who won't enter into a truce, won't enter into a treaty. They won't make peace, right? When someone has wronged them or when they perceive an injustice has been done, they refuse to make peace. It's all-out war. He says, the next term there is slanderers. Uh, this is the word for devils. <laughs> I mean, it's the word for the devil. So it's what the word devil means, a slanderer. Someone who speaks evil against another person with the intention of doing harm. Without self-control. It's interesting that in the list of qualifications for, for, for pastors and deacons in 1 Timothy 3, and the list for elders in, in the book of Titus, all of those lists speak. And then actually the book of Titus really hammers this idea that in every category, Paul talks about the old men, the young men, the older women, the young women, all of them in the church are to be learning and growing in self-control. And it's a requirement for pastors and deacons, Paul says. And yet he says the characteristic of the church broadly is a lack of self-control. 
So that even when we know what's right, we fail to do it because we don't have the discipline to follow through and do what is right. He talks about the word brutal is next. Brutal here means animal-like. It's barbaric, uncivilized. And it also conveys the idea of violence being being the, the, the response. A person who responds violently all the time because they're brutal. They're like an animal. They have no, compun- no compulsion about, about responding in violence to anything. Okay. That's what animals are like. That's the idea here. It's like an animal, brutal. Despisers of good. Uh, this, and again, this, this really makes perfect sense. Because if you are, if everything we've said about these, these people is already true, and you, you see somebody else who is not like this, someone who is virtuous, someone who is honest, someone who is kind and gentle and good, and upright, you hate them because they're everything you're not. And their very existence is a rebuke to you. Their very existence, by contrast, shows you to be as wicked and evil as you are. And so that's where we have this this sense here of the despiser of good. It's not just that they themselves don't do it, but they can't stand to see other people doing good either because that looks bad on them. Uh, He says they're traitors. Again, they, they will... Uh, turn their back on and, and, and give in to the enemy. That's what a traitor does. There's somebody who surrenders to the enemy rather than standing and fighting with their, with their side. He says they're headstrong and haughty. Headstrong here is the idea of, of reckless. They're rash. They make, they make impulsive decisions without thinking about the consequences. And they're haughty, which means they're puffed up. Um, this is the word that's used in 1 Timothy 3 when he says that you're not supposed to ordain a young or a, a novice, a new Christian to be a pastor. Because if you do, they might get puffed up. They might get haughty. And he says, fall into the snare of the, the, the condemnation of the devil. And so the risk of a young man, if he's, if he's too young and immature to being put in a position of spiritual authority, is that he get, a, he get puffed up. He get his head puffed up, and then it will will lead him to destruction. And Paul says, this is exactly the kind of thing we see in the church. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Don't we see that in the church? Entertainment is the key. Because people love pleasure. One commentator that I read this week said... uh, I won't be able to quote him, but said something to the effect of um, the, the masses want entertainment and the churches need money. And so the churches will, are compelled to give the masses what they want in order to get what they need. And so churches, what do they do? They, they provide entertainment. By the way, that writer, if I, if I remember correctly which one it was, was writing that in the 1950s and was saying that was true in his day in the 1950s. Here we are 70 years later, how much more true, right? Hasn't gotten better. None of this gets better. Hasn't gotten better since the first century. If it was true then, it's, it's, it's that much true and more today. Men are lovers of pleasure, much more than lovers of God. Remember, these are people who profess to be Christians. And he says that they have a form of God.
This is the state of the professing church. Worldliness is acceptable. How much the church has become to reflect the, the heathen, pagan world in our attitudes, in our actions, in what we do, in the way we do things. And that is a continual temptation for us in a church, for us as Christians, is to conform to the world. Right? There's no, no surprise that Paul says in Romans 12, right? That in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Why? Because there's always a temptation to be conformed to the world. In every generation, there's a temptation for Christians to look and act and talk and think like the world. And so it requires constant vigilance and constant uh, understanding and awareness of these things because it's always, that, that, that pull is always there. So Paul is, is giving a dose of reality. This is what it's really like in the church. We shouldn't be surprised when we see these things in the church. We should be saddened, but we shouldn't be surprised. Because Paul says this is the state. This is exactly what we should expect to see. But then notice verse 6 through 9 here because he talks here specifically about what's going on in Ephesus. He says, of this sort, the same kind of people there are those who creep into households. I have a friend of mine who says these are the creeps. Right? Paul's talking about the creeps here. They creep into households. And what do they do? They, they make captives of gullible women. This is not an insult to women. It's actually a diminutive form of the word for women here. Um, and it can mean a lot of different things. But I think Paul is clear here. He's not talking about women in general, but there's, specific, there's a specific kind of women that are, that are in view here. Gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's a certain category of people that Paul is thinking of here who are easy prey to the false teachers. And what he describes them as here is interesting. I would use the, here's the classification I would use. I call them truth seekers. Truth seekers. You ever known somebody like that? They're, they're on a search for the truth. Well, let me tell you something. The truth isn't that hard to find. It's not. What does John 14 say? Jesus says, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. You want truth, where are you going to find it? It's not hiding. Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul said it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Where are you going to find the truth? Well, you're going to find it in churches that preach Christ. That's the point. It's not hidden. It's not difficult to find. And yet some people, some people, for all their searching, just can't seem to find the truth. And they keep on searching. And they keep on searching. Why is it that they can't seem to find the truth? After all their searching and all their efforts and all their reading and study and thinking and questioning, why can't they find the truth? You want to know why? Because they won't come to Christ. That's why they can't find the truth. Because they reject the place where truth is found, the person who is truth, and the church to which he has committed the truth. They reject that. 
No, 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 that can't be it. It's got to be something else. And they spend their whole life searching for the truth when the truth has been found. The issue here is these are women probably in the church at Ephesus. That's why he's talking here about this specific situation, but I think it probably applies more broadly. But they're vulnerable to false teaching. <laughs> they consider themselves truth seekers, but they fall prey to lies. Why? Because he says that, that these, these creeps come into their households. But these women are loaded down with sins and led away by various lusts. In other words, they are, they are impulsive. They are controlled by their desires. This is why, again, Paul emphasizes so much uh, the need for self-control as Christians. If you're a Christian, you should not be controlled by your desires. You are to be in control of your desires. You shouldn't be led about by the nose, by your desires. Oh, I just can't help it. That's the way that I am. No. If you're a Christian, you can't say that. As if you're a Christian, you are to live in control of your desires by the grace of God and the power of His Spirit. But these women don't. And so, at best, these are spiritually immature people. And again, at worst, they're just professing believers who aren't actually born again. But they're under the domination of their desires, of their own physical lusts and desires. And this may, again, it may refer to sexual lusts here. Um, the fact that it, he talks about men creeping into their households and this idea that there's kind of this, um, this almost hidden, secretive, thing going on. It, it, he may be thinking in terms of sexual lust and temptations here, but the word isn't specific to that. It could be anything. The reality is these are women who are, are, are at the mercy of their own desires, and as a result of that, for all of their searching for truth, they can't find it. And what they end up doing is falling prey to the lies. Now today, I would say this, today there are creeps they come into our households, but it's a lot easier today than it was in Paul's day because they don't have to be physically present to come in with their false teaching and their lies into our household, do they? I'm not preaching against the, you know, I'm not going to tell you to go, hey, take your TV out in the backyard and bash it in or throw the internet out. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I remember, by the way, I had a coworker of mine years ago in Pennsylvania. We were teachers together, Joe McGorry. Love Joe. And uh, he told about when he was first saved, had a young family, several kids, he got saved. He heard a preacher one time preach about how TV was bad. So he went out in the backyard with his kids. They got a baseball bat, took the TV out there, and they, they smashed that thing to pieces. But you got to understand, okay, this is Joe. We lived out in eastern Pennsylvania, a big-time Philadelphia Phillies fan. And guess who went to the World Series that year? <laughs> After he bashed his TV into pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, over, the, over time, Joe came to, came to moderate a little bit in the positions to realize that you know, the thing isn't evil. It could be used for evil, but it's not evil in and of itself. Um, but it was kind of funny. But anyways, I'm not suggesting that. But recognize that there are false teachers. There are deceivers. There are opponents of the truth out there. And because of the age in which we live, 
Or we have this media that comes into our home and into our, into our life all the time. We're bombarded by it through media, through digital devices and electronic media. That we have to be so careful here. The problem is, Paul says, there are a lot of people who get caught up in this and they get sucked in by false teaching. Man, anything changed from the first century till today? No way. Now the false teachers drive around in Rolls Royces and they fly around in private jets and they wear $5,000 suits and they get you know, dental implants and whatever and you know, they get, yeah, get the hair done right, Greg, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they, I mean, they, they, they're smooth. They've always been smooth. That's the point here. And so there's a danger here that Paul is warning about, these, these, these truth seekers. Because they don't land on the truth of Christ, they're always learning, but they never come to the knowledge of truth. They are vulnerable then to this, the false teachers. Now, there's a little bit of an illustration here in verses 8 and 9. Paul talks about two men, Janus and Jambres, and says they resisted Moses. Um, this is not an extreme, it's not a really clear reference here. There's nowhere else in the Bible are these two men mentioned. Um, but tradition, Jewish tradition has it that these are, these were um, the two of the magicians of Pharaoh, who remember when Moses first went to Egypt uh, and they began to do some of the miracles there, some of the, the signs, that Pharaoh's magicians were able to duplicate some of those. Right? He threw the staff down and it turned into a serpent. And Pharaoh's magicians were able to do the same thing. Now, Moses' serpent swallowed their serpents up and then he turned it back into a staff. They didn't quite get to accomplish that. But uh, he turned water to blood, they turned water to blood. And uh, so they're, they're, the tradition says that's who these are referring to. Men who resisted Moses. The point here isn't so much their identity. That's not as, as important to us here. But it says that they resisted Moses... So do these also resist the truth. These are the false teachers. They resist the truth. They, 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 they oppose the truth. And so Timothy, just like Moses in his day, there were men that opposed him and the truth that he represented. There are men today who come into the church with opposition to the truth. Notice how he describes them here. He says they are men of corrupt minds and they're disapproved or disqualified concerning the faith. These are the kind of people that Paul is warning about. The good news is, verse 9, he says, they will progress no further because their foolishness will be manifest as theirs also was. At a certain point, the magicians of Pharaoh could no longer duplicate the work that Moses was doing. At a certain point, it became very clear that Moses was the one sent from God. And these men were fakes. These men didn't have the qualifications to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Moses because they didn't have Yahweh behind them and speaking through them like Moses did. And that became very clear. And I think that's what Paul is telling Timothy here. Timothy, the good thing about this is to know at the end of the day, it will be made clear who these people are. Their folly will be displayed. And so as we see the state of the church, there's reason to be concerned. This dose of reality, we realize the church 
in Paul's day and in our day, there are some very serious problems. But rest assured, the folly will be made known. But I want to see one, the rest of this chapter, if we can, just look briefly at this and see the other side here as Paul now looks at what I call the state of the, the, the genuine believer. You see, the church may not, may not be in a great state here, as Paul describes it, but there are still genuine believers. Notice verse 10, but you, Timothy, Timothy, Paul says, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. What's important to notice here about the, the state of the genuine believer is first of all, he, f- he follows carefully the examples of faithfulness. He follows carefully the faithful examples. And Paul says, Timothy, you know, we can look at that list of the descriptors of the church, the worldliness of the church in verses 1 through 5, but compare that with the list that Paul gives in verse 10. Timothy, here's what you have followed. You didn't follow after these people who are embracing worldliness and all these ideas and attitudes that are so heathen and pagan and wicked that are, that are coming into the church. No, Timothy, on the other hand, here's what you followed, my doctrine, my teaching. You see, the truth that Paul was expounding. My manner of life. It's, it's important that Paul, Paul links his manner of life with his teaching. Because what is it? Paul's the teacher. He's going to preach the truth, but then he has to live it out, doesn't he? Isn't that true? We look at a, a pastor, we look at a preacher, we look at a teacher, and we want to ask that question. Well, do they live by what they teach? But just as a one observation about that. There are a lot of people over the last, uh, well, let's just say the last 20 years, who've made a lot of money by going around the world and telling everybody that uh, global warming was going to bring an end to the world and we're going to have all these problems. And yet those people, some of those people have been traveling the world telling everybody about how bad things are. You know how they get, you know, you know how they get around? In those really terribly polluting you know, private jets. You know the homes they live in? Huge mansions with with dozens of rooms where they, where they pollute and they have all sorts of, you know, all sorts, way, way bigger homes than you and I have. Way bigger, quote-unquote, carbon footprint than all of us. I would be a lot more inclined to believe them if they actually lived according to what they teach. But they go around the world and tell everybody else how we should cut back and we should preserve and we should conserve, but they don't do it. Well, guess what? If a guy doesn't do what he preaches, he doesn't have much credibility, at least not in my, in my book. And if we haven't seen examples of that in the last year and a half, then you haven't been paying attention. People who, who, who say one thing and then do a different thing and lose all credibility as a result. Paul says, Timothy, you followed my teaching and my, my pattern of life because they're the same. See, Because I live consistent with what I teach and Timothy, you have followed that. He talks about his purpose here. This is the, 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 uh, the, 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 the stated goal or intention of his life. His faith. 
His, this is, Paul says, listen, you, Timothy, you have seen me live by faith. You've seen me walk consistently here. You've seen me trusting the Lord. His long suffering. This speaks of his, his uh, um, patience with others. His willingness to endure wrongs that are done against him. Paul says, Timothy, you've seen this in me. You've seen my love. This is not the same word, like the opposite word of unloving from earlier. It's, it's the word here that speaks of the sacrificial love. Paul says, Timothy, you've seen me sacrifice for others. You've seen me love. You've seen the perseverance, right? That, that determination not to give up and not to give in. And you've seen the persecutions and afflictions which happened to me. Now, he mentions, by the way, three places. He mentions Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. And this is really interesting because remember, this letter is written at the end of Paul's life. Paul has lived and ministered for decades here. But these three places he mentions represent some of the earliest ministry that Paul had on his first missionary journey. He went to Antioch and they got... Jews got riled up there, so he left there, went to Iconium. They came there, followed him there, stirred up the Jews there. He had to leave Iconium, went to Lystra, and they got so upset at Lystra that they stoned him and tried to kill him. And they dragged him outside of the city and threw him on the, on the garbage heap thinking he was dead. And the Christians all gathered around him, and as Harry Ironside says, the Christians gathered around him, and they were getting ready to hold a funeral, and Paul stood up and said, no, no need for a funeral. <laughs> but this is what happened to him. Way back at the beginning. Now, what's important about this is that's where Timothy was from. Timothy was from that area. Timothy was probably a young man when that was going on. He may have seen it, or certainly he knew about it, heard about it, because he was there and probably led one to Christ during that first missionary journey. And so Paul is basically saying, Timothy, from the first time that you knew me, you've seen the persecutions that I experienced. And you've watched my life from then till now. And you followed me. The word follow here means to trace out, like you're tracing out a, a line. You've copied it exactly. You've traced it exactly. Timothy, you have so carefully followed me. This is what the genuine believer does. The genuine believer doesn't get caught up in all of the worldly ideas and philosophies. Instead, he follows the examples of faithfulness. You think about your life. Who have you had in your life that has demonstrated faithfulness to you? Have you followed them? Have you you found that faithful person, that faithful believer, and you followed them and you began to pattern your life after theirs because you saw their faithfulness? Paul says, Timothy, that's what you did because that's what genuine believers do. They follow the examples. But notice then verse 12, he continues on, and, and this kind of blurs into the next point a little bit because he continues on. Yes, he says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He says, I've suffered it, and everybody who's going to live godly is going to suffer persecution, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is what we can expect. If you're going to follow, if you're going to follow the example of Paul and follow the pattern of faithful men, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to suffer persecution and, and the world is going to continue to get worse and evil men are going to get worse. But verse 14, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. Now he's speaking to Timothy here, verse 15, and that from childhood 
you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, Timothy had a benefit. He had an advantage that some of you never had. He had a childhood where he was taught the Word of God. Timothy had a mother and a grandmother that we know for sure were believers. They were, his mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. But Timothy's Jewish mother taught him the Scriptures. That would have been the Old Testament. And she established in him an understanding of the truth of the Scriptures of the Old Testament. Timothy had that advantage. And Paul says, Timothy, you've known these things from childhood. You've been trained in these truths. But he says this, and I think there's a couple points here that are worth noting. Timothy is to continue in the things that he has learned. Isn't there sometimes a tendency when we grow up and we're... We, we, and we see this happen sometimes in young people. They grow up and they're taught a certain way... And they get to a point where it's usually, you know, when they begin to become adults. And sometimes they look at everything they've been taught and they say no. And they say, I don't buy it. And I don't want it. And they turn and they go a different way. And Paul says, Timothy, don't do that. Don't abandon the things that you were taught the truths that you have been assured of. He says, continue in them. But the second part of this is important too because he says, knowing from whom you've learned them. I think there's, a, I think there's an importance here for us to appreciate the, the need for respecting those who have taught us, respecting those who have trained us and who've, who've given us the truth. Because I think we see this sometimes, in young people especially, when they grow up, sometimes they, they look back on the things they were taught, and they look down on them. I, I, think, I think we see this sometimes in our world today because there's a tendency to, to become, to, to think that, you know, the Bible is just very, it's very unsophisticated. Christianity is very unsophisticated. And so there's a tendency that as we, there's a lot of people out there that will say, well, I grew up in church, I grew up as a Christian, and that was okay, and that might be okay for some people because they're kind of simple, but I, I grew past those things. I grew beyond those things. I think Paul is warning Timothy not to fall prey to that kind of thinking. Because it's the kind of thinking that really despises those people who have taught us. You know, I think about the, 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 the people right now that, that are coming each Sunday morning here and teaching the children in Sunday school. It'd be easy for those children because we're teaching them on their level and we're teaching them things that are, that are accessible to them as children. So we, we do teach them simple things because you teach children simple things. But there's a danger, there's a potential that, that children sometimes, as they grow up, can look back at that and say, well, you, that was fine because it was simple when I was a child, but I'm not a child anymore, and I don't, I don't need those simple things. And there's a disrespect sometimes for the people that have taught. Paul is telling Timothy, don't do that. Don't despise your mother and your grandmother who taught you the Scriptures. 
because they infused in you this truth. And notice, these holy scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. How else are you going to come to know Christ but through the scriptures? How else are you going to come to know the truth and have salvation if not through these simple truths? As the reality is that the gospel, the good news, is simple. It's simple enough for a child to understand. We shouldn't despise the simplicity of the gospel. We should continue in it. And certainly there's much more in the Bible than just the gospel. There's much more in the Bible than just that, that, that simple message of salvation. But we all have to start there, don't we? We have to start there. And, and certainly there are deep things. There are things that are challenging and difficult to study and understand. But that all comes later. Let's not despise the simplicity of the gospel. And Paul is saying here to Timothy, Timothy, you've known these things from the time you were a child. Don't turn your back on them. Don't walk away from them. But stay, continue in those things that you were taught. Because they are able to make you wise and lead you to salvation. Notice, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What's he talking about? Again, he's talking about the scriptures here. And so he concludes in verses 16 and 17. This is what the genuine believer does. He continues on in the simple truths of scripture. But see, the simple truths of scripture, where do they come from? Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's a fancy way of saying it all came from the mouth of God. So when you read the Bible, you're reading what God spoke. You're reading what God said. When you read the scriptures, you hear the voice of God. You want to know what God says about something? Read the Bible. You want to know what God thinks about something? Read the Bible. This is the word of God. That's where it came from. All scripture is, is God breathed. It's, that's what that word inspired means. God breathed. It's the breath of God. It came from his mouth. That's the source. And since it's from God, notice, it is profitable. Well, you bet. You better believe it's profitable. You better believe it's relevant. There are a lot of people today that say, well, the Bible's great for, for, for people living hundreds of years ago. It's not so great today. We're a much more sophisticated society. Our day and age, these things just don't really apply anymore. Hogwash. It's the word of God, and so it is applicable today, and it is profitable. But what is it profitable for? He, he tells Timothy, it's profitable for doctrine. That is to teach you what is true. You want to know the truth. <laughs> Again, earlier in this passage, there's all the people who are always seeking for the truth and never finding it. Why? Because they won't come to the scriptures. They won't come by faith in Jesus Christ and receive the truth. That's what the Word of God is for, for doctrine, to teach you the truth. It's for reproof. That's, that's the thing we don't like. That's when the Word of God steps on our toes. As we read the Bible, we realize, oh, I've been wrong. I've been doing wrong. I've been thinking wrong. I've been speaking wrong. I've been acting wrong. And we're, con and we're reproved. It, 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 the Bible shows us where we're sinning, where we're wrong. 
That's uncomfortable. But he says the Bible is also this, the scripture is also profitable for correction. Because it doesn't just say you're wrong, it says here's how to get right. Here's how to deal with the wrong and get right. <laughs> That's a good thing. Read the scriptures because the scriptures will show us where you're wrong, but it doesn't ever leave you there. The scriptures show you how do you get right with God? How do you get right with others? How do you, how do you stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing? The Bible tells you that. And then he says it's also for instruction in righteousness. That word instruction in righteousness is the word for training. In other words, not only does the Bible teach you how to get right, it helps you know how to stay right. It shows you where the path is to walk so you can do what's right going forward. All of that taken together, verse 17, is so that the man of God, again, it's not talking about pastors here, it's talking about all of us as Christians the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word of God is sufficient. That's why we don't need to find something new, something more sophisticated. We don't need to find something better adapted to our age. We don't need to find some other mechanism or tool There's a lot of philosophies out there, and every generation, every few years, we come up with a new one, although it's probably just the old one with a different name on it, I don't know, but we always come up with new ideas, new philosophies. And what happens? The, the world gets carried away with them. I mean, right now, we're seeing this happen uh, in our society with things like critical race theory, intersectionality, uh, some of these ideas that are, that are becoming so prevalent and supposedly, if we would just buy into that kind of thinking, we would have the answers. We could figure out how to, get how to help people get along. We could solve the problems in our society. No, it doesn't work that way. What we have is everything we need to be fully equipped for every good work right here. We don't need a new philosophy. We don't need a new idea. We don't need to listen to whatever's coming out of academia. We need the scriptures. We need the, the truth of the gospel to change lives, and then we need to go on in the Word of God to be fully and thoroughly equipped so that every good work is at our fingertips because God's Word equips us to do it. So what do we do? We just continue on in the simple truths of Scripture. We don't go looking for something else. You say, well, that was what I was taught when I was a child. Yeah, and it's still just as good today as it was then, Timothy. That's what Paul's saying. Timothy... What your mom taught you, what your grandmother taught you, just keep going with that. Just stay on the truth. So where are we at today? Again, our churches, the temptation of worldliness, those things are always present. The, the danger of being a, a truth seeker who never seems to find the truth, always present. What we need to do, you and I, is we need to follow those examples of faithfulness. And we need to stay, just stay on, continue on in those simple truths of Scripture. Be satisfied with the provision of God in the Scriptures. 
Next week, we're going we're gonna to take this a step further as he's going to go in chapter 4 and he's going to give Timothy a charge, but it's going to really flow out of what we're talking about today. I think there's good reason for us today to, to evaluate where we're at. Examine our own lives and see, are we faithful? Are we resisting the temptations of the world today? And are we following faithfully in the truth of Scripture? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege we have again of this time in your word. Lord, this, it's important for us to take a, a good look at ourselves, at our church, and at our own lives, our own hearts. Lord, show us maybe where some of these attitudes of the world have crept into our thinking. Some of these appetites, some of these characteristics maybe have begun to become true of us. If there's some area in our life where we have uh, gone astray, Father, show us that. Make it very clear. And help us to be humble and submit, to confess our sin, to recognize if we have gone astray or if we've become uh, uh, captive by the lies and the deceitfulness of false teaching. Bring us back. Bring us back into conformity to the truth. Bring us back into that life of of carefully following godly, uh, faithful examples. And Lord, I pray that your word would be that, that form into which our lives are shaped and molded. Your, your word would be the the, the full nutrition, the the full equipment that we need to be healthy and strong and to be obedient to you and be faithful. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us today and in our church that we might stand for the truth and exemplify what it means to be faithful, genuine Christians. And Lord, I pray that if someone is listening to my message this morning, we haven't really talked at length about the gospel here, But certainly the implications are very clear that someone can say they're a Christian, but their life can look just like the world. Maybe evidence that they're not even really born again. And Father, I pray that you would help us in this time of self-examination. Lord, help us to know that we are your children. And if someone is not a child of God, if they've not trusted you and been saved, I pray that they would repent of their sin and they would cry out for mercy today, believing that Jesus died for them, that they might be saved. We give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.